What do you see when you look at your city? What do you see when you look at your church? What do you see when you look at yourself? Do you see nothing but broken piles of junk and rubble? Because when God looks at you, he sees a future and a hope. The Bible tells the story of Nehemiah, a man whose heart broke when he saw the ruined walls of Jerusalem. But in that rubble, he also saw hope. He saw the tools to rebuild. It's time to see our city the way God sees it. It's time to see our churches the way God sees them. It's time to see ourselves the way God sees us. It's time to rebuild. Welcome to Seacoast Church. My name is Ernest Smith. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. And I want to thank all of you joining us at an off-site location. Maybe you're on the internet or to West Ashley campus or Asheville campus or many others. I want to thank you for joining us. Also want to give a big old shout out to Crossroads Church. Uh, we're thankful that you're with us this weekend as well. Now I know what some of you are saying, Ernest, what is wrong with your face? <laughs> Don't worry, I didn't forget that I was speaking and chose not to sh shave. In fact, this isn't one or two days of not shaving. This is over two weeks of not shaving. Uh, and there's, there's actually a purpose that I'll kind of get to later uh, about that. But, uh, you know, just to, uh, uh, out of all the things that my dad has passed down to me, there are some things that I love, and this is not one of them. Um, but just to be fair to him, I mean, he, he, if he had to choose anything to pass down, it probably wouldn't have been terrible facial hair um, to his son. So, uh, but how cool would that be? I mean, how cool would it be for us to choose what we pass down to our kids? I mean, could you imagine like, if, could you imagine if you got to choose what to pass down to your kids or to the next generation, what would it be? For some people, they might want to pass down some type of material possession, maybe like jewelry or a car or a house. That'd be pretty awesome to pass down. I mean, I can't wait till, you know, pass down some of the things that my parents have given to me to pass those things down to my kids. And uh, but some people, maybe they want to pass down something a little bit more valuable than, say, a car or a house. Now, no, I mean, what's more valuable than a car or a house? Well, Believe it or not, here in the deep south, there are some people who take their football a little more seriously than anything else. And I don't know why. I mean, I don't know who those people are, but, you know, there's just some people who do that. <laughs> Y'all like that too much. <laughs> or maybe you want to pass down something that's a little more meaningful, a little more uh, eternal, Maybe some values that, uh, that your family believes in or some values that you believe in that you want to pass down. You see, all of us, whether we're married or, or single, whether we have kids or we're not even thinking about kids, every single one of us wants to pass something down to the next generation. Every one of us wants to, to, um, uh, to, uh, to give, impart something, some type of wisdom or some type of value to the next generation. We want to leave a mark. We want to make a difference. We want to leave a legacy. You know, Nehemiah is the same way. And this week, we're finishing up a 10-week series uh, called Rebuild. And we've been looking at the book of Nehemiah, which is one of my favorite books uh, in the Bible. And we've been seeing how this simple 52-day building project not only changed a man, but a family, a community, and an entire nation. You know, up until this point, they've rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem. They've committed it to the Lord. And last week, we saw how they worshiped and, and they celebrated God by reading his word. And so they've got to be done, right? I mean, they, all the people can go home and live happily ever after. Nehemiah can finally take that vacation that he's, he's been longing for and needing. They're done, right? Well, not exactly. You see, the mission was never to really rebuild a wall. The mission was so much greater than that. In fact, the rebuilding of the wall was just a means to accomplish the ultimate goal that Nehemiah and the people had. So what was the ultimate mission? What was the ultimate goal? 
We have to go all the way back to Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17 to discover that. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. And if not, it'll be up on the screen or it's in your message notes. It's Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17. It says this. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. There it is. That's the goal. The goal was never to simply rebuild the wall. The goal was to no longer be in disgrace. Nehemiah cared very little about rebuilding a wall. What he cared about was rebuilding a generation, rebuilding a nation. You see, for him, he was tired of sitting back watching, you know, the walls be crumbled and the people be scattered and they were afraid and the nations around them mocking the nation of Israel, saying, where's the nation of Israel now? Where's their great God that they once worshiped? Where are these people? You see, Nehemiah, he wasn't interested in rebuilding a wall. He was interested in rebuilding a nation. But he knew in order to do that, he, he wasn't done. The people weren't done. Because see, a wall can be destroyed again. The people can be scattered again. So how was Nehemiah gonna make sure that they preserved what God was telling them to preserve? And they, they had to make sure that they built their, their community and their foundation on certain principles that God had already taught them. That God had already said, if you do these things, then I will, I will hold you and I will sustain you. And so Nehemiah, he's, they're people, they're trying to rebuild this nation based on these principles that God's teaching them. And I believe that, you know, for us, we're sitting here in an aftermath of a, another presidential election. And I believe we're sitting in a similar spot as the people of Nehemiah did. Now, I'm not saying that our walls are torn down. And I'm not saying, I'm not trying to make any political statements or anything, but I believe that where the people of Israel sat during that time is the same place that we sit today. You see, they had to ask themselves some questions. Are they okay with the nation that they see around them? Are they okay with how the people are living their lives? Are they okay with the fact that God is really just a passing thought in the hearts and the minds of many of their countrymen? I think for us, we have to ask similar questions. Are we okay with the nation and the bigger picture of the world that we see around us? Are we okay with how people are being treated or mistreated? Are we okay with the fact that God is really just a passing thought in the hearts and minds of many people? You see, the people of Nehemiah, they weren't just simply wanting to change their generation or change their world. They were wanting to make a difference that would last for generations, that the change that they would make would not just change their generation, but they would change the generation to come after them and after them and after them. They wanted to leave a legacy. So how'd they do that? The bigger question is how can you and I leave a legacy? So that's the question we're gonna ask and answer today. How can we leave a legacy? Well, there are five chapters left in Nehemiah and there's a lot that's happening in these five chapters. But there's really three main principles, three main values that kind of bubble up to the surface that we see that, that allowed these people to leave a legacy in their lives and to the next generations. And I believe these are three principles that if you and I practice, that we'll see God use us to leave a legacy. Principle number one, pray continually. Pray continually. You see, the people of Nehemiah, they understood that without prayer, that nothing was really going to happen. That prayer was their most powerful weapon. That prayer was the most powerful tool that they could have to help rebuild this nation. In fact, all of chapter 9 is a prayer to God. Praying, exalting God's name, thanking God for his faithfulness, thanking God for his grace and his mercy. They were thanking God for the faithfulness that he had even when they remained unfaithful. See, the people of Israel, the 
people during Nehemiah's time, they understood that prayer was going to be the thing that changed everything. And I've often wondered what would happen to our nation if we were a nation of people who prayed continually. Now, I know there are some people in this church and in other churches that, and you're prayer warriors. I mean, you wake up super early and pray for hours or you go to bed real late and pray for hours. But I would say a lot of us are more like myself where it's just a struggle just to get up in the morning to brush your teeth, much less getting up hours earlier to pray. You know, the good thing about the Bible is it doesn't give us any mandates about what time we should wake up to pray or how long we should pray, but it does give us some good guidelines about what our prayer life should look like. In 1 Thessalonians 5.17, it simply says this, pray continually. Pray continually. At the beginning of the year, Pastor Greg gave a, a message on prayer, a powerful message. And he said, may we be a church that prays specific and persistent prayers. And that message really just changed me. Because at that time in my life, I wasn't praying very many specific prayers. And I wasn't praying my prayers uh, persistently. And so 2012 has just been a radical time of transformation in my prayer life. And I'm not saying that I'm perfect with this, but God has really been teaching me to pray specific and persistent prayers because I firmly believe that prayer is the thing that's gonna change everything. That prayer is our most powerful weapon and that if we wanna leave a legacy in this world and to the generations to come after us, we must be a people that pray continually. You know, the great theologian and preacher of the 19th century, Charles Spurgeon, he says this about prayer. All hell is vanquished when the believer bows his knee in supplication. Beloved brethren, let us pray. We cannot all argue, but we can all pray. We cannot all be leaders, but we can all be pleaders. We cannot all be mighty in rhetoric, but we can all be prevalent in prayer. I would sooner see you eloquent with God than with men. Prayer links us with the eternal, the omnipotent, the infinite, and hence it is our chief resort. Be sure that you are with God, and then you will be sure that God is with you. Can you imagine if we were a generation that prayed continually? What type of legacy would we leave? What if we were a generation that prayed more for our politicians than complained about them? Did I say that? <laughs> what if I was a person who prayed more for our politicians than I complained about them? What if we prayed more for our servicemen and women what if we prayed more for our spouse or our future spouse? What if we prayed more for our kids or our future kids? What if we prayed more for our church? Could you imagine the legacy that we would leave if we just simply changed this one area of our life? If we just continued to pray and gave God everything that we have and if we prayed big, bold prayers, prayers that only God could answer and believing that he could answer them, imagine what would happen. Just as a little side note, I firmly believe that that our prayer life is a reflection of our, of our faith. That your faith can be seen in the prayers that you're praying. Meaning if you believe that God is a big, mighty, powerful God, then you're praying big, mighty, powerful prayers, believing that he can answer them. For your family, for your workplace, for your school, for this nation, for our world. What if we were a generation that prayed continually? I believe we would leave a legacy the second thing we've got to do if we're going to leave a legacy is that we've got to lead courageously. Lead courageously. In Nehemiah 11 verses 1 and 2, it says this, the leaders of the people were already living in Jerusalem. So the rest of the people drew lots to get one out of 10 to move to Jerusalem, the holy city, while the other nine remained in their towns. 
the people applauded those who voluntarily offered to live in Jerusalem. Now this passage has always struck me as kind of odd. At first we see the leaders and they're living in Jerusalem. They're saying, hey, we're, we're gonna be there. We're gonna live there. And then we see the people, they're like, we don't want to live in Jerusalem. So they have to cast lots, which is like, which is like drawing straws. And whoever got the short end of the deal, whoever drew the shortest straw, it was like, hey buddy, you're going to Jerusalem. And everybody else got to go back to their hometown or back to their, their plot of land or whatever they were. And, and then in verse two, it tells us that the people actually applauded the leaders for voluntarily moving to Jerusalem. So what's the deal here? You know, we don't fully understand why the people didn't want to move, but we do know this, that the leaders were willing to go where the people weren't willing to go. That the leaders were willing to do what the people weren't willing to do. They were willing to lead courageously because they knew that that's what God needed them to do. So how do you and I lead courageously in our lives? Let me give you a couple things. Number one, speak boldly. If you want to be a courageous leader, you've got to be willing to speak boldly. To speak truth to a person or in a time that needs it to be willing to stand up for what you believe in, to be willing to share your faith. You know, I know, I know a lot of people, they're intimidated when they think about sharing their faith because they think they have to know the entire Bible or know all there is to know about God. But if that's the case, then none of us can share our faith. You see, simply speaking boldly means that it may mean for you that you just encourage someone when they need encouragement. It may mean that you pray for someone when, you need, when they need prayer. And just as a side note there, when you... Somebody says they need prayer. You say, I'm going to pray for you. Just do it right there. I got tested a couple times after the service earlier today. Hey, will you pray for me in this? I'm like, uh, yes, now. No. <laughs> maybe we pray immediately for the needs of people. Or maybe speaking boldly is you inviting someone to church. Did you know the greatest form of evangelism in today's society is simply inviting someone to church? Why? Because it means that you get to do what only you can do. You see, God has placed certain people around you, your family, your neighbors, the people in your workplace. He's placed certain people around you that he hasn't placed around me or Pastor Greg or anybody else. And he's relying on you to build relationships with those people and then simply invite them to church. And when you do that, then you leave it up to us to be able to do what you feel like you might not be able to do, which is present the gospel in a clear and concise way. And if we partner together on that and you invite the people that God has placed in your life and we present the gospel in a clear and concise way, people's lives will be radically transformed, which means our nation will be radically transformed, which means our world will be radically transformed. But it simply takes us being willing to speak boldly, to say what others may not be willing to say, to invite people to church, to lead people to Christ. Another way that we can lead courageously is to be willing to sacrifice willingly. Be willing to sacrifice willingly. You know, these leaders, they were willing to go and live in Jerusalem. They were willing to go where other people weren't willing to go and to do what others weren't willing to do. And so what, what would God call you to sacrifice? For some of you, maybe God's going to call you to sacrifice your time. And for you, leading courageously may mean volunteering in our children's ministry or a student ministry or leading a small group for your neighborhood. For some of you, maybe God's calling you to sacrifice your comfort. Maybe something in your life, God's saying, hey, just give that up. It's comfortable to you, but give it up for me. Maybe for some of you, I know there's a lot of us in this, in this church that, man, you open up your homes to complete strangers, knowing that that's what God's called you to do. Uh, there was a couple at, after last night's service, and they came up to me, and they said, we've been praying about whether or not we should allow this family to move in with us. And the message clearly told us that that's what we need to do. So we're going with that. I thought, that's it. They're willing to sacrifice willingly so that God can be glorified. For some of us, maybe God's gonna call us to sacrifice our current residence. 
Maybe there's another neighborhood that God wants you to move to or another city or another country. And maybe, just maybe, God has a different group of people that he wants you to reach out to that's waiting for the gospel through you. Are you willing to sacrifice? Are you willing to sacrifice what God has given to you? You know, in my time as a Christ follower, I've been blessed to be around a lot of courageous leaders. I mean, all of my time as a Christ follower, I've been right here at Seacoast. And it all starts at the top with Pastor Greg, who's just an unbelievable, humble, courageous leader. I've seen him speak boldly. I've seen him sacrifice so much for his family, for this church, for people who don't know Christ. And he's really been able to impart that, that desire to lead courageously into so many others. So I've been blessed just to watch leaders around here really lead courageously for God. I think about a couple of guys who aren't on staff with us anymore who have been willing to sacrifice willingly, willingly for what God has called them to do. I think about a guy named John Holm who moved from the Arctic climate of Minnesota down to paradise of Charleston. And then within two years, he moved back to Minnesota because he felt like God was calling him to plant a church. I think about somebody like Pastor Sean Wood who probably sacrificed more than anybody else that I've known because he moved from Mount Pleasant, South Carolina to Monk's Corner, South Carolina. <laughs> and if you know anything about the two cities or the two towns, and you know we talk a lot about the differences between those two places, but let's just talk about the similarities for a moment. I mean, both towns, they start with the letter M. <laughs> That's about it. Sean sacrificed a ton to plant Freedom Church. I was talking with these guys this week, and I was just asking them how things are going, and Sean told me that in the last year, they've, they've both been, and the church has been planted for a year now. And Sean said in the last year, they've baptized 56 individuals. 56 people's lives have been radically transformed because of that sacrifice. Amen. He told me a story about how this past summer they were doing VBS and they invited this orphanage that's near them to, to come and be a part. And the kids loved it so much and the chaperones felt so loved and cared for that they decided to come back on Sunday. And they haven't missed a Sunday since. And the director of the orphanage told Sean that there's no place, no other place that these, kill, these kids feel so loved and secure than Freedom Church. And I thought, that's it. Amen. That's it. I mean, God knew that there was an orphanage in Monk's Corner. God knew that there were people in Monk's Corner that their lives were going to be radically changed by the sacrifice of people willing to go. And John was telling me about how this past year they've had 43 people accept Christ for the first time. That's unbelievable, 43 people. And he's telling me about one guy that at Christmas Eve, he came to church for the first time. And this guy, he was in bad shape. I mean, he was extremely depressed and he was uh, thinking about ending his life. And it, it was so bad that his wife told him, either you pull the trigger or you change. And she threw a flyer, John's Christmas Eve mailer at him. Now, ladies, I would not suggest you use that tactic on your man. But somehow it worked for them and he came to church and he accepted Christ on Christmas Eve and his life was radically transformed. He's now one of their greatest volunteers and biggest supporters of the church. And I thought, that's it. That's why we do what we do. I mean, those guys understand that Jesus is the hope of the world and the greatest vehicle that he uses to distribute that hope is the local church. And these men were willing to sacrifice willingly and their families and people that went with them so that people in Minnesota, amongst corner and different places can come to know Christ personally. What an unbelievable sacrifice. You know, if you've been around Seacoast for a while, then you know that every year we do this thing called Hope Epidemic, 
where basically we just uh, try to point out a need that's in the world and, and, and try to figure out how we can, you know, help to, uh, to make a dent in that need. And the first year we, we focused on uh, helping with clean water. And the second year we focused on education. The third year we focused on uh, medical care. And this upcoming year, our fourth year, we're going to focus on church planning and leadership development. Take a look at this. It's believed that after the ascension of Jesus, the Apostle Thomas came south through India and then here to Sri Lanka, planting churches and spreading the gospel. However, this new faith, not being handed down through the generations, would eventually crumble, giving way to a host of other religions. Now less than 2% of the population of Sri Lanka are evangelical Christians. But the rebuilding has already begun. In the last 12 years, God has raised up a modern-day Nehemiah to mobilize this handful of believers. And we believe that he and his church are on the precipice of a mighty move of God. Bethany Christian Life Center started with just 12 believers and has since grown up to a congregation of 1,500 believers, 13 church plants, and a full-time team of 30 people and also five interns in training. Our ministry reaches out to three language groups. Our ministry also reaches out to different parts of the island, including the post-war areas of the north and the east. We also have supporting systems for widows, school children, and families who live in poverty. God's hand has been upon this church, and we see tremendous growth and a vibrant community of people at Bethany Christian Life Center. Every year, Seacoast does an extra push into the world through what we call Hope Epidemic. Since it started, Hope Epidemic has provided clean water systems, built schools, and medical clinics. And in 2013, Hope Epidemic is planting churches. When we look at church planting in uh, the past decade, we see that most church planting movements have focused more on funding the church plant rather than the church planter. And as a result, in time, these plants become dry and these pastors end up facing many difficulties and challenges because they find it difficult to bridge with the society and the community they go to minister in. But at our church planting school, what we want to do is to equip these pastors to reach to the community better, to build bridges so that they can be successful church plants all across the island. And our goal is to have 100 church plants through Bethany in the next 10 years. Through Hope Epidemic, Seacoast has the opportunity to, to join with the international partners of Bethany Church to fully fund and support the construction and first two years of this school. Even local Sri Lankan believers are getting on board by providing resources so that this school can be successful in raising up and equipping new pastors. So we know that this is going to be a blessing to our nation and we pray and we hope that even as we uh, talk about launching this and talk about raising funds and getting people to partner with us, uh, we hope that you'll be able to partner with us as well and see the Kingdom of God being established in Sri Lanka. May the Lord bless you and thank you once again. If Jesus really is the hope of the world and his primary vehicle to distribute that hope is the local church, then we've got to be planning more churches. You know, the two churches I just told you about, 99 people, 99 people who were desperate for God to do something in their life, their lives have been radically transformed because of the willingness of people to sacrifice. Now, what I'm not saying is that you need to go and move somewhere and go plant a church. But what I am saying is that there are people around you who are desperate for God. We're desperate for God to do something mighty and powerful in their lives. 
And God is simply looking for us to say, God, use me. Every day, may we wake up and say, God, may you use me. God, may I be a, may I be a leader who leads courageously, that I speak boldly, that I sacrifice willingly in whatever you call me to do. May we be a generation who prays continually. Imagine the legacy that we can leave if we do those things. The third thing we've got to do if we want to leave a, a, a legacy is we've got to give rejoicingly. Give rejoicingly. Now, I know what you're saying. Is rejoicingly even a word? No. But the beauty of being a preacher is I get to make up words, and you say amen. 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 So what does it mean to give rejoicingly? Well, if we look at in Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 43, we see the people giving rejoicingly. It says this, and on that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. So we see in this passage that the people, they were giving great sacrifices. And we don't know how great great is, but we do know that it's above the normal, like way above what they're used to giving. And while they're giving these great sacrifices, they're rejoicing. I mean, they're celebrating, they're shouting, they're cheering. I mean, it's so loud. The rejoicing is so loud that it can be heard from, from far away. And as I read that passage, I think, why? I mean, why were these people willing to give above and beyond what they were used to giving? And why were they rejoicing while doing that? I think it's for, because they understood a few things. They understood, number one, that whatever sacrifice that they could give paled in comparison to the sacrifice God had already given to them. You know, whatever sacrifice we give to God, no matter how great we may think it is, it pales in comparison to the sacrifice of what God has given to us. His love, his mercy, the sacrifice through Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That even though we did not deserve it, Christ came, lived the perfect life, and died on the cross for our sins so that we can be set free from the sin, so that we no longer have to live in darkness but can live in light, so we no longer have to be hopeless, so we no longer have to live without peace, so that we no longer have to live without life, true eternal life. You see, the life that Jesus offers, he says in John 10, 10, it's abundant life. It's the greatest life ever to live. And it doesn't start when you die physically, it starts when you die spiritually. When you simply sit there and say, God, no longer am I gonna be in control, but I'm gonna trust you. I'm giving my life over to you. And then the great life begins to happen. And there are a lot of people in this world, and I would say there are probably a lot of people in here who for some reason still have not chosen to allow Christ to come into their life. My question for you is, what are you waiting for? I mean, first of all, you don't ever know when your life is going to end. You never know when your time is up. But more than that, why would you not want to live the abundant life that Jesus promises? Why would you not want to live the life that Jesus offers to us of, of true hope and of peace and of joy? Why would you not want to live that? And my prayer for you is that today you would confess your sins to God and ask Christ to come into your life. And you'll experience grace and love like you've never experienced. And your life will be transformed for the glory of God. You see, I think these people understood that the great sacrifice that God has given to us is far greater than any great sacrifice that we could give back to God. I think they also understood that everything that they had really wasn't theirs anyways. They understood that really everything they had been given was just on loan from God to begin with. And when we come to that understanding that everything that we have, 
our house, our cars, our clothes, every dollar that we have, everything we've been given really is just on loan from God. When we come to understand that, then we're able to say, God, I'll give you everything. I'm willing to give you everything because it's yours anyways. See, when we come to a place where we understand God's great sacrifice for us, and we come to understand that everything we have really is on loan from God anyways, then we're willing to give rejoicingly. And I'm not just talking about money. There's lots of ways that you can give rejoicingly. People who open up their homes give of their, of their space rejoicingly. People who give of their time, people who serve, they, they give rejoicingly. People who give of their finances, they give rejoicingly. There are so many ways that you can give rejoicingly. I mean, in fact, this that you see on my face of what some of you thought was a chia pet growing really is just my way of trying to give rejoicingly. It's my way of saying, God, here I am, use me in whatever way you, you can. And there's a, a few guys here at the Long Point campus that, that look pretty sketchy right now because they're doing the same thing that I'm doing. You see, I, I oversee an organization called Bread of Life and we reach out to the unreached people groups of Kenya and the South Sudan. And when you reach out to unreached people groups, you have to go where other people aren't going. And to go where other people aren't going, you have to be creative in your modes of transportation. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to buy a couple motorcycles, one, maybe two, hopefully three or four, so that we can get our missionaries and our pastors further into the bush of Africa to be able to help people come to know Christ, churches planted, and communities radically transformed. And so I've asked a few guys, hey, don't shave for the month of November. And as a way to try to raise some money, try to find some people who will sponsor you. So for a dollar a day, sponsor, get somebody to sponsor you. And if we get enough sponsors and we get enough guys who are willing to do it, then we can buy one bike. And if some people give a, a little bit extra, then we can get two bikes. And if some people give immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, then maybe we'll get three or four bikes. My wife's hoping that someone will just strike a check so I can shave and be done with it. <laughs> But ultimately, we're just trying to give rejoicingly by doing something that's so simple so we can help so many people. There's so many ways that you can give rejoicingly. In fact, I want to just put it on your, on your calendar. You do not want to miss being here the weekend of December 15th and 16th. Okay, if you were planning to go out of town, cancel it. I'm serious. Like you do not want to miss what God's going to do. I just, I can't tell you about it all, except all I can say is that what we're going to do on the weekend of the 15th to 16th of December, we've never done at Seacoast. And we've been around for almost 25 years and it's hard to say that about anything. So trust me, you want to make sure you're here that weekend because God is going to do something unbelievable to leave a legacy and to make a difference. Like, could you imagine? Could you imagine if we could choose what we pass down to the next generation? Well, we can. And I believe that our generation can make the greatest impact than any generation's ever seen. I believe that God has placed us for such a time as this, that our opportunity, because of the amount of resources and because the, the, the sphere of influence that we can have, that our opportunity to make an impact is far greater than any other generation that's lived before us. But the question is, will we be intentional? Will we be intentional about praying continually? Will we be intentional about leading courageously? And will we be intentional about giving rejoicingly? See, I believe if we do those things, not only will we leave a legacy, but we'll change our families, we'll rebuild a nation, we'll transform a world, and maybe, just maybe, 
generations after us will say that generation, that generation God used to change everything. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you. Thank you so much, God, that you have placed us in this world for such a time as this. And that, God, you want to use us in a radical way, Father, to to help people's lives to be transformed by your grace and your love and your mercy. And, Father, first I want to pray for the individuals that are here at Seacoast and that are here at the other campuses and at Crossroads that may not know you. Father, I pray that today, Father, they would commit their lives over to you. That, God, they would trust you with everything. And they would begin to live that abundant life that you promised us, Jesus. I pray for those of us, God, that need to, God, have a a change in our prayer life. Father, we need to be praying more specific or persistent prayers and praying continually. God, I pray that you would radically transform that area of our lives. I pray, God, for those of us that you're calling us to lead courageously, to speak more boldly or, God, to sacrifice willingly. I pray that, Father, you would show us exactly what we're supposed to do and that we would be obedient. And God, every day we would wake up and say, Father, use me today. And God, I pray that we would give rejoicingly. Whether it's our finances or our time or the comforts of our home or whatever it may be, God, that we would give rejoicingly, trusting you to do what you want to do. Father, we thank you that we can have an impact not only in this generation, but for generations to come. May you use us in some way to do that. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.